How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. You are Locked On Bucks, your daily Milwaukee Bucks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to Locked on Bucks. I'm Eric Name. Joining me as always is my good friend Frank Madden. And joining us in, I don't know how long it's going to be, let's say 10 minutes or so, um, is Cole Zwicker, who does a ton of draft stuff. So we're attempting to dive into the draft, get you all that information, find you the smart people that know things rather than us who try to pretend to know things about the draft. So we're going to get you those people. Um, so that was pre-planned. We had thought that was going to be what we were going to do tonight, and then more things broke on the John Ham- John Hammond situation and on the Justin Zanuck situation and pretty much all this stuff. So I, I guess we'll try to talk about that a little bit now. Uh, but other than that, Frank, how are you? I'm fine. I'm, um, you know, for better or worse, our... I, I did not regret our podcast takes. Uh, I forget some someone commented that we were kind of we we were actually kind of hot takey uh, in our reactions to, to in last night's podcast. But um, I listened to it again, and we followed the news today. And yeah, I I mean I don't know. I mean the Bucks are kind of in this weird weird place right now where uh, we thought they had a plan, and then they let John Hammond go, which we weren't shocked by and then it turns out they didn't really have a plan and now they're apparently going to go think about and look for a a potential new gm who isn't justin zanuck but i don't know if they're actually gonna really find anybody else so i don't know what do i mean i still assume justin zanuck will eventually be the gm of this team but i I don't know um um, i guess we'll see and as you as you tweeted the the clock is ticking with with the draft coming up yeah i guess the I guess what's interesting to me is obviously that <laughs> when we talked about it last time, we were thinking, okay, maybe it'll go as far as noon tomorrow, and then our podcast will be worthless. And instead, our podcast became even more uh, prescient. It made even more sense. And like you said, as I was listening to it, I was like, okay, all these takes hold up pretty well. Um, and all of the this is kind of mirrors my reaction and i guess just some one of the things i kind of wanted to talk about shortly tonight like i said we have a guest and i want to get to that but one of the things i wanted to talk about shortly was just kind of the idea that when i said this seems like a team that didn't have a plan or they weren't quite ready to get to go through that plan that maybe they had set up with the with having uh, with having Zanuck on the staff, having Zanuck ready to go and just f- hire him ra- right away, a bunch of people kind of questioned our questioning of it last night by saying, like, well, why shouldn't the Bucks evaluate the situation? And why shouldn't they be in an organization that looks at this and tries to make the best decision? And to that, like, I totally agree. But if that's the the thought process, like, why didn't they do this months ago? Like if they had doubts about Justin Zanuck, if they weren't a hundred percent sure of Justin Zanuck, well, then they should have moved on from Justin Zanuck and kept John Hammond. If they weren't sure about John Hammond, which they seem not to be because they didn't give him a contract extension, they let him interview for other jobs. Well, then maybe they should have let him go earlier and brought in a new GM earlier and put all these plans in motion because. Now at this point, you're up against the clock. Like I, like I tweeted out this morning, and I'm going to tweet out uh, when uh, when this podcast comes out, is 28 days to the NBA draft and 37 days to the start of free agency. And we just saw the Hawks go through this, and we just saw the Magic go through this decision, and it took them four and six weeks respectively, or maybe even more. In, and maybe, I think that's about it, four to six weeks. Four to six weeks takes you to draft night. Uh, so either the Bucks are totally fine with Zanuck taking them through that period as the interim GM and then they figure out something down the road, or it's going to happen very quickly in two weeks and 
I, I don't know who you're gonna be able to manage to get in in six or in two weeks. And we've heard David Griffin as a name that's been floated around, but the Cavaliers have not granted him the the ability to interview anywhere. The, that just hasn't been something they've allowed him to do. So I, I don't see how you're going to do that. And then, I, I don't know, there's just a ton of questions I have to ask because then all of a sudden if you're going after those type of big fish, isn't isn't he thinking, I want the Weltman position. Like, I want to be the play, I want to be the president of basketball ops. And you know what? I want to bring in my own GM. And I want to bring in my own coach. Like, then all of a sudden you're talking about wholesale changes. Like, like straight up gutting the entire front office and starting over and again that seems like something you would have done months ago if that was actually what you wanted to do so i don't know like i understand people saying like okay this is something they should evaluate this is a huge decision i don't disagree with that but if it was a huge decision that they didn't feel comfortable with either their secession plan or john hammond this summer then they should have made a move as soon as the bucks were eliminated from the playoffs and maybe they should have even done it earlier. Like They should have been ready in February and said, okay, as soon as the season's over, boom, we are executing and we are going forward here. So um, I don't know. I'm as, as generally confused as I was last night with kind of what's going on and why this would be the way to go about things. Um, but I think we're going to have some time here to kind of wait and see what happens because I don't – I don't imagine this is going to happen quickly now as they've announced that there's going to be a search committee and they've hired a firm to go out and help search for uh, candidates and stuff like that. Like This is going to take a little bit of time, so we'll have plenty of time to talk about it, but um, that was just one thing I wanted to talk about in regards to kind of what's going on with the Bucks and the GM position right now. Yeah, it just, I mean, I think the main thing is it just doesn't seem like they were prepared for something that a year ago they seemed to open themselves up to, right? I mean, they kind of set themselves up to, you know, let John Hammond leave or, or encourage him to leave, obviously, um, when they hired Justin Zanuck and sort of the, the writing was on the wall. And, and again, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that that they had to promise Justin Zanuck with an ironclad, you know, pinky swear if it was Jeff Weltman. Um, but uh, you kind of look at the facts, as you said. I mean, if Zanuck wasn't promised the job, that's fine. Um, but then you know, how'd you kind of let yourself get this far? Right. And it's just so strange how indecisive the bucks have generally been uh, on sort of the all kind of front office manners and just sort of how, how difficult it has been to sort of figure out the direction of the team in that regard, because John Hammond obviously gets inherited, never had a really strong mandate, obviously as a guy who, um, you know, was, was again, inherited from the previous regime. Um, Jason Kidd gets hired without him having any input into it. Uh, and then, you know, you get this period where everybody's trying to figure out if Jason Kidd is going to try to make his power grab. Um, I, I think, where our assumption all along here um, has been over the you know in recent weeks and months that you know Jason Kidd was not going to do his power consolidation move at this point that he has um, lost uh, enough of sort of the uh, credibility that he might have had with ownership at one point um, and Woj in in his report today on uh, on Zanuck becoming the interim GM and the Bucks kind of looking and and opening up the search to others um, you know he he said pretty bluntly that that kid is isn't a candidate to uh to become uh to add front office power to his coaching role so um that's i think you know i feel like that's been one of the major paranoias i've seen from some people on twitter is you know oh well does this does this end up with jason kidd as president of basketball operations um you know say what we will about sort of the the ownership's indecision on on you know what they want to do with this position but it seems like they've at least realized that that is not a good idea um and we've talked a fair bit about why that is and why a guy like jason kidd typically hasn't made for a good um president of basketball operations or gm type guy so um so yeah i i don't know exactly what what to expect next you know certainly a uh, cleveland.com reporting on david griffin seems like david griffin probably resigns eventually and i, I don't know if that's gonna happen sooner or later but apparently the Bucks haven't, you know, asked for permission to talk to him, and as you said, they haven't granted it to other teams either. Um, and we haven't really heard any other names. So 
Um, you know, basically our situation is Justin Zanuck is leading the team through this draft process. Um, I don't know if that's going to be used as a, you know, barometer of, of whether they feel comfortable working with him long-term as, as the guy, uh, as the GM. Um, but he's obviously going to be the guy in charge for now. And, um, we'll see what kind of process they actually go through. Um, and as we said, I mean, we, you know, we, we don't know, Justin Zanuck doesn't have his own track record as uh, a decision maker, you know, on his own, he's been an assistant GM. Um, you know, I'll say it, as I said yesterday, I think from everything we've kind of heard, whispered and said, um, you know, Justin Zanuck seems like a guy that that ticks the boxes as far as a, a young GM candidate goes. And um, I think we certainly haven't heard anything to suggest that the past year he's um, disqualified himself from that position. And obviously he knows the franchise. He knows the the key people in the organization better than any other candidate that might be coming to the door. So um, certainly an interesting time for for the Milwaukee Bucks, to say the least. And, um, you know, I, I guess the bright side is, uh, you know, if Justin Zanuck was was to be made GM, you know, if, if they had just said, yep, Justin Zanuck's the GM, um, you know, they'd be rolling forward the way they are right now, technically. Um, and you just hope that, you know, whatever sort of ambiguity that this creates for for all the people in the front office that, um, you know, they're able to do their jobs and that whatever the Bucks ownership group wants to do, they do it as quickly as possible. Because obviously, as you said, you know, the, the time is, is ticking on, uh, on the draft, time is ticking on preparing for free agency. And obviously, if they want to do something different, Different from what has been indicated in the past. Um, there's no time like the present. But as you also said, um, these things don't tend not to happen overnight. So um, at this point, um, once again, sort of the the ambiguity and uncertainty around what the Bucks really are going to do with with their front office decision making. It, it's taken another turn, and um, once again, it's taken another turn for sort of uh, 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 in another cloudy direction, uh, which I guess at this point we should sort of be used to. All right, Frank. I'm tired of talking of that, about that. Yes. Um, let's, let's talk about draft. Yes, let's get to the guest. Absolutely. Well, we have a, a special guest tonight, um, and it's Cole Zwicker of, of many places. Um, Cole does great work looking at pretty much like all levels of basketball. Cole follows like draft, draft prospects from when they're in high school. If you want to know about what happens at the Hoop Summit, Cole knows that college prospects, international prospects, um, NBA stuff, cap stuff. Um, he writes about it at the step back. Uh, he's got a, a great website of his own, capstrategist.com. He's got a lot of interesting resources there about the draft and cap stuff, things like that. Um, and he podcasts as well. Something I've, I've mentioned on uh, my Twitter, uh, what's on draft podcasts, uh, which he does pretty regularly. And he's been appearing on other podcasts and Cole, I guess this is, is this your high demand portion of the year? I've heard you on Game Theory with Sam Bassini a couple times of late, and I've enjoyed that. But is this like when all your requests come like really hardcore here ahead of the draft? Certainly seems to be that way. I mean, I think I've gotten a couple recommendations for podcasts recently, but I mean, over the last week, there's been more interest in the draft now that we have a little bit more certainty with the draft lottery. And today we get pretty much all the announcements of who's going to stay in outside of apparently Hamadou Diallo, who has not made a decision yet, to my knowledge. So yeah, it's a fun time of year where you just get to hop on a bunch of different podcasts and have discussions about, you know, team specific stuff is something I haven't really done a lot. So I'm excited to do this for the Bucks. Awesome. Well, let's, this is, you know, Eric and I spent the last two days talking about the sort of ongoing weirdness, uncertainty around the Bucks uh, general manager position. And so I, I was thinking about asking you this question as a starting point, just to kind of sort of center us and, and sort of set the table for um, kind of a deeper draft talk and thinking about how we, how we dive into the draft. Um, but it now is especially relevant because apparently the Milwaukee Bucks are looking for a GM. So Cole, you have been called into the offices of of Mark Lazary, Wes Edens, and and Jamie Dynan to to interview for the Bucks GM job. You've got I don't know five minutes, whatever you need to give them sort of your your pitch on on the your philosophy, how you'd approach building a contender in Milwaukee. Um, so give us kind of your just kind of big picture thoughts on on you know what you kind of see with the Bucks and. Um, you know, how you would be thinking about going into the summer with both the draft and free agency, uh, obviously pretty important for the Bucks. They have some constraints there. They don't have a super high pick, obviously, at 17 and 48. Um, but what kind of be your thought process heading into a pretty important summer for a team that's obviously on on the rise, but still has some a fair bit of work to do to become a legit Eastern Conference contender? Well, I think the most important thing to realize is that you have a franchise cornerstone in Giannis who has the potential to be the number one player in the league, in my opinion, a primary initiating wing, which is probably the golden standard of archetypes. 
and he's only 22. So you have a really nice piece in place to move forward. Obviously, the entire league is in kind of a frenzy with you know they're too, they're being such um, elite teams at the top via the top two. What do you really do in the short term? Do you build for the future? Do you try to do what you can to compete now? I think the Bucks are in a really nice position because they have a fixture moving forward who can both compete now and you can build long term around him at 22 years old. I would try to acquire as much capital as far as two-way players as I could. Um, you're going to need some secondary playmaking, but Chris Middleton at full capacity, I think, can handle that burden. Jabari Parker is really the most fascinating conversation for me just because he does align with Giannis as far as age. And when they both reach their physical primes and skill primes, they're going to be on the same trajectory. It's just the question of do they fit better? Both are pretty much fours now. Like They used Giannis a lot at the four this year as kind of that – you know, chaos creator around the rim paired with Thon Maker. So there's some nice pieces for the Bucks. I would emphasize maybe a, getting a guy who can guard opposing point guards. Malcolm Brogdon was fantastic in his rookie year, but he doesn't have quite the athleticism or the speed to match up with the Kyle Lowry types. So maybe fixate on acquiring that kind of talent. In the draft, it's going to be a little difficult because, as you said, at 17, you're just in kind of the dead zone after the top 11 or 12 picks, which in my opinion, there's kind of a, a drop off to where everything's kind of the same after that. So it, it's going to be difficult, but there's definitely um, re- reason to be optimistic in the fact that you have one of the best, you know, five players moving forward in the league for sure. And not a lot of other teams can say that. Cole, I guess the Jabari question to me is very fascinating with this Bucks team, just because you have to think about extension and you have to think about trying to project going forward with with two ACL tears on the same knee. And there's just so much question there. And and as someone who looks at talent and tries to project and and think about these things, what what do you kind of see as his future? Because I know Frank and I have gone a million different ways on this. And I would just be curious what you think of Jabari and his future. It's really difficult because he is such a rare offensive player. You rarely see guys at that size who are that bouncy. I mean, he's a freak athlete when it comes to like accelerating and getting up off to attacking the rim. Uh, you just don't see guys that can handle it that size the way he can. So there's a lot of, you know, optimism in his offensive game for sure. It, it's just the question is, can he play next to Giannis? Is he the kind of player that can be optimized, you know, as a co-handler role, as a secondary handler type? Is he going to be able to shoot threes well enough? Defensively is where the concerns come in. I'm sure you guys feel the same way as far as, you know, he's he has outlier bad instincts to me off ball. And it's just something that, you know, it's really hard to deal with probably. I mean, if you played in the playoffs, you probably see that manifest tenfold as far as picking on him, putting him in screens, making him make decisions on the move. That's what I've always worried about with him. So is he going to be good enough offensively to really mitigate those defensive damages? And that's going to be take one hell of an offensive player. He's probably going to have to be better as a playmaker for others, make better passes on the move. He's shown a little bit of flashes there, but nothing really to, to make you think that he's going to be like a Draymond Green high-level decision maker, which given his defensive deficiencies, I think he's going to need to become. So the, uh, the extension talk is really fascinating just because he's coming off the injury. We don't really know what physical capacity he's at, and you have to make a decision on that by 1031. Not a huge deal, but you can move him to a team that can give him that James Harden contract, that five-year contract to make him the designated player. So that's something to keep in mind. So there is a time frame to where you're going to see a decision being made. But he's kind of like a a question box. Like We don't really know enough information to project him going forward, but I think his value in the league is still probably pretty high. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because the the injury is just such a killer, right? Because you know it's hard enough to sort of figure out whether he's going to be a real difference maker when he was healthy because he obviously he put up the points and you saw the evolving skill set as a shooter and as you mentioned like his bounce is just kind of crazy for a guy with you know who looks like at first blush is kind of soft like where he doesn't look like you know your chiseled sort of explosive guy but um but yeah i mean the injury i i've just been assuming that there's not going to be any trades with him now just because you know again it's just so hard to value it was so hard to value him anyway and then now with with the injury you almost kind of have to see him come back but obviously when he's coming back will be the summer before his restricted free agent year. And he's not going to be hundred percent until really 
um, you get into that that period. So it's it's just a really tough spot. But um, I think you know our, our assumption is probably we're just gonna have to wait and see. Um, and I think one a couple of guys that we won't have to wait as long for to to understand where they're gonna be fitting into the Bucks' future um, is for starters Greg Monroe and and also Tony Snell. And just kind of be curious to get your thoughts. I mean, we've kind of gone back and forth on, um, you know, is Greg Monroe going to opt in? Should he opt in? Should he get opt out? Um, and, and is that even is, is one of those even better or worse for the Bucks? You know, um, I think a lot of questions are sort of about can you afford to give him something that he'd want to get uh, money wise long term? Um, but I've kind of pondered, you know, especially while Jabari is still on his rookie deal, is it maybe OK to to maybe have him opt in next year. Um, and then you've sort of figured out the, the year after um, when perhaps your cap sheet becomes a little tighter if Jabari gets an extension. Um, so I don't know. I mean, what do you see from Greg Monroe? And we can get to Tony Snell maybe in a second. But um, is, is Greg Monroe a guy that you'd see as like, you know, just let him walk, hope you just move on? He's not, you know, your typical sort of modern-day NBA center, or is he a guy that you can still see playing a role on the Bucks and someone that they should try to keep? I think he can play a role in the Bucks. I mean, I think they did the right thing, bringing him off the bench and kind of that high usage bucket getter role, like I call it. Uh, he, he has value there, and he played he played hard this year defensively. He's not going to give you optimal defense. He just doesn't have that kind of foot speed in space. But in, in this year, I don't see the, the real harm if you don't really have the versatility to replace him anyway. Him staying for an extra year, he has value on the Bucks. He, he can play a role. It's just it comes down to building long term. I don't think I'd give him another contract after this one, uh, especially if it's a high dollar amount that he's probably a command maybe in the short term kind of Al Jefferson type that he got from the Pacers. But as far as just this year, I, I think he has utility for the Bucks. I'm not really concerned about him on the cap sheet if you can't replace him adequately anyway. If there was an opportunity that arose that the Bucks could get in on one of like the tier one max guys, they'd have to move some other guys around too as well. That that'd be a situation where you could say, okay, yeah, I hope he opts out. But as it stands right now, especially if Spencer Hawes opts in, there really isn't an, enough cap room to maneuver and replace him adequately. So there are far worse things that could happen than him playing an extra year. I think the other guy, obviously this summer for the Bucks is Tony Snell. And I think there was maybe a point of inflection on him where Bucks fans stopped freaking out about it because there was a Kevin O'Connor article that had mentioned, oh, Alan Crabb got this amount of money last year, and Tony Snell maybe is one of the wings that would fit those kind of uh, descriptions, those kind of criteria this summer. And I think since that moment, everyone's kind of figured maybe there's not enough money around to have Alan Crabb money. There's not a reason to go that high. What do you think Tony Snell's market is? Because obviously, as a restricted free agent, the Bucks can just match. But I, I don't think you want to match Alan Crabb money. Um, so there's got to be a kind of a point in there. Where do you think that point is for Tony Snell? I would say for me, when I, when you guys sent me this question, I was kind of pondering maybe 12 to 14 a year million. That's a little bit less than average starter money. You're banking on the 37% from three in his career. I thought he was actually pretty good in the playoffs. He defended DeMar DeRozan well, in my opinion. Uh, he shot the three well. So he, he's kind of the guy you want to surround. He's the kind of player you want to surround Giannis with. But you're exactly right. I mean, if the price gets outlandish and Alan Crab money, I'm not sure if I want to invest that kind of capital in him. He's definitely someone I think that you let the market dictate his contract unless he comes on very agreeable terms. So if he were to some reason agree to like 10, 11 million a year from right from the bat, that's something I think you got to jump on. But if it's, if his demands are higher and they probably should be in this market because we we've seen guys get overpaid considerably in this uh, increased cap environment, then I think I'd just stay the course and see what kind of offers he generates. And if it's too high, let him walk. If it's reasonable, match him. I don't see it as like a really high priority case I like him moving forward for the right price, but if he if he leaves, I don't think that's like an insurmountable hill to overcome. All right, Cole. I think let's get into the stuff that we really bring you in here for because we are not draft experts. We we always tell people that that we we try our best, but you are that guy for us. So we are gonna squeeze all of the information we can out of you. Um, one thing I like to do as the draft approaches and we figure the, the lottery happens and normally the bucks are in it and we figure out where the bucks will actually be <laughs> drafting because uh, it could go any what any direction <laughs> i'd like to get a couple categories where i have the first one is people that are almost definitely gone and i can't imagine the bucks will get one is that they might be gone but they also might be there and then the third group is almost definitely will be there where you can kind of try to grab just 
group those prospects into an area where you'll see somewhat clear de- delineation that you know, okay, if I'm a Bucks fan, I'm probably not going to see these people. And you mentioned, I-, I think, a 10 or 11 to start. And that would be this year for me, the almost definitely gone group as far as the Bucks go at 17. Um, is Do you want me to read off names that I think are that group and you can correct me? Uh, or who do you think those 11 are? Because in my mind, it's probably Fultz, Ball, Jackson, Tatum, Fox, Monk, Isaac, Smith, Markkinen, Nilakina, and Zach Collins? Is, would that be the 11, or did I have some wrong at the end there? No, I think that's perfect. And I would probably add Donovan Mitchell. He might be in my second category of might be there, but after the combine and his measurables, if you compare that with the tape, like people are going back and watching him more at Louisville, and he was a much better off-the-dribble shooter, a much better secondary playmaker and pick-and-roll than I think most people gave him credit for. So given his measurables and the fact that he's probably the best point-of-attack defender in the class as far as combining strength, length, uh, toughness, energy, all that stuff. He, he's a perfect fit in the box. And that's someone who before the combine would be my number one target for Milwaukee, but I, I don't see him getting out of the lottery. So he would probably be the 12th guy, but those other 11 were on point. Damn you, Cole. I was really hoping you would tell me that Donovan Mitchell was because, because again, I, 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 you know, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm not super fluent in, in this year's draft, but he's definitely a guy who, um, you know, you watch obviously what we always start with as, as you know, and I think uh, I think your buddy Sam Vecini, who, who we've potted with as well. I think Sam referred to people like us as parachuters, right, who come in right at the end of April, May <laughs> and start to try to bone up on the draft. Um, he was definitely a guy like you watch, you know, you watch the draft express strengths and weaknesses videos and you just sort of look at it and it's just like, you know, this guy doesn't have any like huge, horrible, totally unfixable flaws. And again, you, you've talked about kind of two-way players, right, and how valuable stockpiling that two-way talent is. And you know, he definitely seems like a guy who would fit that bill. And and obviously, you know, not a pure point guard by any stretch. You know, I don't know if he's, I don't know if you'd even call him a combo guard, but but definitely an interesting guy who um, took a lot of threes. Maybe didn't shoot a super high percentage, but good free throw percentage. Um, and certainly the athleticism. It, you know, again, I, I don't know if he's like as athletic or I don't know if he's as functionally athletic as some of the combine numbers, but certainly plays pretty athletic. And, and obviously, you know, he does it on both ends, which is, is pretty cool. Um, so here's a question. So if we say Donovan Mitchell is out, um, we've got our list of 12 that we can just file away and say, okay, don't even think about these guys. If you're the bucks, unless you want to trade up, um, who, who kind of jumps out at you, you know, if, if not Donovan Mitchell, who, which, which guys out there look like really good value at, at a spot like 17 or, you know, jump out at you as being guys that, that would fit well, especially with what the bucks are trying to do in the big picture. I mean, there's just a plethora of centers that are going to be available there. There's too many centers in this class to draft in the first round. Uh, th- a lot of them are probably going to get pushed down. And with Thon there, I- I'm not sure if that's a huge need. I don't know what you guys think about that. I- I'm-, I'm pretty high on what I saw from Thon. I think he's going to be at least a solid role player based on what he's shown us so far. If he can shoot the three, he becomes immensely valuable. And he's got pretty good mechanics. And I think the early rewards there are pretty promising. But for me, we don't really know if this guy's in the draft yet. We talked about him before getting on the air, but Hamadou Diallo is someone who fits the Bucks kind of frame and archetype as far as drafting high upside. I usually don't just draft athletes. There has to be some kind of functional athleticism that you see on the court that backs up what Hamadou had at the combine, the 44-inch vertical. I've seen him in person before at Adidas Nations. This is someone who is an incredible defender on ball when he puts effort in. Uh, he, he's a... A lot of people have compared him to a younger Victor Oladipo and actually more polished than Oladipo was at that same age. I didn't see Oladipo, so I can't really reference that. But I think that's pretty promising as far as a, a reward and a return on your investment at 17. And he, he definitely has a high ceiling. He's one of the best athletes in the draft if he stays in. Um, I would, you know, the, the issue with him, of course, is the shooting next to Giannis. You want guys that can knock down threes and spread the floor He's not there yet. His his shot's incredibly raw. If you watched him at the U18s, all his shots were all over the place on spot-ups. He had really bad misses. His mechanics aren't consistent yet. So he's more of a, a long-term investment. But if we're looking at high upside, you're probably not going to do any better in that area than Diallo. If you want a two-way player, potentially, um, and has that athletic mold and all the length requirements that the Bucks usually look for, I think that's a nice fit. Let's stay kind of with the, that same mold uh, of a high upside guy, maybe a non-traditional route guy. And Terrence Ferguson, I think, is a guy that a lot of Bucks fans have kept their eye on because, as we talked about before we started recording, well, that's 
that's the Bucks mold. There, there's that athleticism, there's that unknown, there's that mystery, and there's that intrigue, and that is very much kind of a Bucks idea. So uh, what are your thoughts on Terrence Ferguson? He's definitely someone who's still living off the reputation of the Hoop Summit game where I think he hit seven of 11 threes and really impressed with his athleticism and shooting combination. He just doesn't really have any ball skills at this juncture. Like he, He's not a dribbler. He's basically just a 3 and D guy, and you really have to rely on the defense. He's a little – his frame isn't that filled out. He's pretty skinny, but he is a, an excellent run-and-jump athlete. You know, He's won multiple dunk contests on lower levels, so he has that intersection. I haven't watched a ton of him yet. He's someone I have to get to in the next couple of days as far as his Australian league play. There's been a lot of mixed reviews about him there. Some people th- say that he's held up pretty well considering his competition level. And it, but his stats are just egregiously bad over there. You know, he, he hasn't shot the three that well, and that's really what his calling card is. So in, at the 17 spot, I, I don't have a huge issue with that. It's more of an upside play that he's going to be able to shoot and defend. But the thing with him is there's no really floor to that because he's not like a high IQ player. He's, he doesn't have ball skills. He can't dribble. He's not a passer. So really, you're, you're banking on two things that he hasn't consistently shown at a professional level, which makes him a, a dice roll. But at that point, I mean... There's not a lot of certainty. You could go with like a Josh Hart there, but he's going to be available in round two. We can get to those guys at a later juncture. So at 17, I wouldn't have an issue with Ferguson. I'm not very high on him. He would be out. He'd be more of an early round two, mid round two pick for me. But I, I've seen worse picks. <laughs> you mentioned the big guys in it, and it seems like there are a ton of them. And I think it may have been on one of Sam's podcasts. I forget if if it was him or you or somebody. But I think somebody referenced that I heard say, you know, that that possibly 14 of the top 20 players on, on in the draft are, are big guys. And I guess the rest might be, <laughs> might be point guards. Um, but it, it is interesting because obviously we talk a lot about the quality of the point guards um, and, and we're probably not going to get into that as much. Um, you, you talked a lot about, especially Dennis Smith. I know you're really high on Dennis Smith. Um, we can maybe refer people to, uh, to your what's on draft and, and Sam and game theory pods um, to get more on some of that. You talked a lot about sort of what you liked about Dennis Smith, maybe what you don't like as much about De'Aaron Fox, but with all these big guys, um, I, you know, it's interesting because I think in terms of like Buxy type guys, you know, you've got um, a, a couple guys that maybe are, are more in that mold, like Harry Giles, who's been really injury prone the last few years, but was a super high level prospect. I think I saw on on your website um, you had him, I think, before this year, coming into this year, rated very highly just because of his tools and, you know, kind of from what you've seen, some of the U18 stuff that he did. Um and um, and oh god, I can't even I can't even remember his first name, but John, the French dude who's like got a seven six wingspan. Um, there's are those seem like the kind of like boxy, you know, super long big guys that are like the mystery box. We don't know exactly what they are so much. Um, but then you've got other guys like Ike Anabogu or Ike Anabogu. I don't even know how it's pronounced. You know, Justin Patton, um, and then maybe some kind of more like hybrid uh, hybrid fours like um, T.J. Leaf, John Collins, um, Ivan Rapp, some of these other guys. Do any of those guys kind of jump out at you as as guys you particular like or maybe particularly don't like at this point? Um, because I think certainly, you know, big guy maybe isn't as much of a need for the Bucks at this point, but um, it does seem like there's a good chance that the best value could be from one of those guys. Yeah, we just see that the bigs in the league that aren't special are getting nominalized. If you can't space the floor, if you aren't like a unicorn type, if you aren't like a playmaker, there isn't a lot of value for average bigs anymore, especially ones that can't play in space. So all these guys have their warts. Giles at peak capacity, I had him top five at the time just because his athleticism at a younger age pre and, uh, pre-injuries was just fantastic. I mean, if you saw that manifest at Duke, he'd probably be a top three pick just based on what everybody saw at lower levels. But the sample that he put on display at Duke post-injury is basically like borderline undraftable guy. I mean, you talk to guys in the league, they don't have a position for him, which means he's a backup five. And what does he really bring you outside of rebounding and hustle? Um, it's unfortunate because he's such a great kid. It's just it's hard to come up with why a justification for why he should go top 20 in this class just because it wasn't on film at Duke. Uh, if you go through the other guys, Justin Patton is someone who a lot of guys really like and have even top 10 just based on upside. I liked him a lot earlier in the year because you can see his development like on a game-by-game basis. He's really raw, but he's also has rare offensive skills, someone who can shoot a little bit, very functional on diving to the rim and catching lob passes. He can pass a little bit, too, on the move. 
but his rim protection is just not there. He just doesn't have great IQ and awareness around the basket. So I tend to to fade bigs that way. If you can't defend and rebound and you're a five, I, I just don't know what your value really is at a high level, if, especially if you're not like a dynamite space defender. But I guess the most intriguing guy for me is the French kid, Jonathan Jan. At the combine, he kind of impresses his fluidity as far as his ability to change ends. That's probably his best skill right now is his ability to run the floor at his size with that kind of wingspan, block shots. I'm not as high into shooting as some people seem to be. I just don't think it's functionally there mechanically. It's not smooth. seems like kind of a push shot. But there's there's definitely some upside there. He's kind of what I call outlier size physical tools, and those guys tend to translate uh, a little bit better. I've talked to someone who's connected with him in the past, and he compared his mindset to Rudy Gobert. Of course, that's kind of the lazy overall comparison based on nationality and uh, his, his measurables. But this is someone who definitely has the mindset, it seems like, to be good. It's just the question of when's the right time to, to roll the dice on him. 17 would probably be okay for me. I like him probably the most out of this group. Uh, going down the list, Ike Nabogu. Again, you have a guy with ridiculous physical tools, 6'10 with a 7'6 wingspan, tree trunk legs, 250, tries to block everything underneath the rim, but really raw. I know DX had a video of him shooting mid-range jump shots. I'll believe it when I see it. But he's, a, he's another one of those physical tools guys that we see in this kind of general area. I'm much lower on, to answer this, kind of, this aspect of the question, much lower on John Collins and TJ Leaf. Collins is someone I see as a backup five even in the tournament where people were giving him praise, he, all his baskets came either in the post or in transition. He's not a good defender, and he doesn't space the floor. I don't see a lot of value and utility with him unless you're going to play him at a backup five, and I think you can get those guys in round two. TJ Leaf, very, very poor defensively. He can space the floor a little bit and play make on the move. Good instincts as far as hitting the glass quickly. But if you want someone who can defend, he's, he's really frail. He's not physical at all. He's not going to be able to defend in space, kind of like Larry Markkinen. So that's another guy I would stay away from. And finally, Ivan Rabb, someone who was once compared to Chris Bosh, which was kind of ridiculous at the time, but someone who this year has seen his stock kind of plummet. I just don't know what position he plays at the next level. I like him as, again, a backup five type because he's very good hands, good touch around the rim as a, as a finisher. He can run the floor, and he has decent feel. It's just he can't protect the rim full time at the five. He's frail, and he can't really dribble or shoot threes, so he's not a four either. So there's just a lot of guys that are, are flawed. And with me, I, I'm automatically pushing those guys lower in the first round probably most out of the first round entirely just because the value is not there for them anymore. So if those are guys you push down, who are guys in the Bucks area that maybe other people don't have in that area, if that makes any sense, that if those guys are automatically get pushed down, who are some guys that push up for you? I would say probably guys like Josh Hart. But the thing about that is, of course, the league's probably going to value them differently. They can be had in the second round, but he's a top 20 pick for me as someone who, I mean, Buck fans are very familiar with Malcolm Brogdon, of course, not exactly the same kind of player, but just someone who can come in, give you enough defense. I'm much higher on Josh Hart's overall offensive versatility. I think he gets killed too much based on that Wisconsin game, especially when he couldn't do things one-on-one against Nigel Hayes, who has like 30 pounds on him. So I don't think that was really a a good comparison to have to the next level, but we're talking about someone who can score in versatile ways. He showed this year he can run a pick and roll, at least secondarily. His finishing at the basket has been fantastic every year. He has really good body control and and maximizes his athleticism around the rim. Good feel, and he he can shoot a little bit. So I I just don't see why he's so low. If you have him low 20s, I get that. But if to see him going like 45th in some mock drafts, he's an NBA player to me. So at 17... He doesn't have immense upside, but if you're looking for a return that is likely a rotation player in the league, which in that realm is is a really good outcome, I think that's someone I would look at. Another guy who's kind of jumped on the scene recently is Derek White out of Colorado, who a lot of guys like, someone who really showcased his feel, his pick-and-roll ability at the Combine. He's a pretty good scorer. I'm not sold on his defense as much. He's pretty frail. You saw even like Dylan Brooks at the Combine just run right through him. But if you want a guy who can shoot, play, make at a backup guard spot, I think that's another guy you can look at at 17. Jordan Bell, lastly, this is another backup five type, but actually someone I have ahead of all those other fives. I think he's a very niche player at the next level. His frame is not going to allow him to play the five, start there. He obviously can't be a four. He's not skilled enough for that. But as a backup five, 
who can play in the playoffs. We saw his lateral agility at the combine. He was it was like a record setting um, agility time, and that backs up what you see on film. Tremendously good at defending in space, can protect the rim some too. But he really just is a backup five. But he's someone who can actually survive in the playoffs. So that's why I really like him. That's a little high for me. I would probably trade back for any of those guys. But just if you're talking my personal board and where I value guys, Jordan Bell would be top 20. Okay, I'm going to do this. Bucks fans are going to hate me, but whatever. I'm going to ask about it. I swear I've seen him on like six mocks at 16 to the Bulls, the pick before the Bucks. Luke Gennard, shooting guard, Duke. I know he's got the small arms, but the one thing the Bucks have been talking about for the last, I don't, I don't know, decade um has been they need more shooting and that has always been the case and where they'll try to get their shooting is okay we got this freaky prospect who could probably profile as a shooter sometimes and maybe if everything hits right he can be a shooter but they don't actually draft shooters so again it's not a very bucks pick but i'm very curious about luke Kennard. well i'm i'm just offended that you're not calling rashad vaughn a shooter eric i'm just so (laughs) i'm so hurt that you did not profile rashad vaughn as a shooter anyway i uh, sorry cole go ahead answer the question no no if you want a shooter he might be the best in the draft i think that Malik Monk shooting is going to translate a little bit better just because he has the athleticism to separate a little bit more than Kennard does. But Kennard can shoot in every capacity, which is what you look for from elite shooters. He's elite pulling up off the dribble. He's elite coming off screens, and he's elite on spot-ups. So when you factor all those things together, he has the overall shooting baseline to thrive at the next level. He also has craft in his game. He can put the ball on the floor a little bit. I'm a little more dubious of that translating just because he isn't that athlete. He doesn't have a ton of shake to his game, even though he's like, I've always compared him to like college Goran Dragic, but I don't think he has the athleticism to really make that translate. But if you're higher on him, like some are, I know like Sam Vecini has him, I want to say top 13, top 14, and you believe in that playmaking and translating, he's not just a shooter. But if you're looking at solely getting an input, and an immediate production in a specific skill at 17, I don't think you can do any worse than Luke Kennard as far as just coming in, being able to make open shots and give you some secondary ball handling in very limited situations. It's very not it's not a Bucks pick because I don't think he's going to be able to defend anybody, and he's going to be a liability at the highest levels of play, so I tend to devalue those guys. But as far as just simply shooting, you're, you're, he's going to shoot the ball. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing the all-Duke combination of, of Jabari Parker and, and Luke Kennard in the lineup probably would not be uh, a pretty thing to look at in terms of defensive rating. Um, so one question, so we, you, you mentioned this, the, you know, the dead zone in, in terms of the point guard depth in the draft. There's obviously, um, uh, I guess, five of them that, that you know, could go top 10, 11. Um, and then there's this sort of soft spot where, where there's not really anybody that really kind of leaps out. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about the, the kind of rest of, of the point guards. And a lot of these guys are, are generally going to fall more into that second round type projection. But um, do any of those guys stand out? I mean, I, I think of the Frank Masons, Monte Morris's, uh, Frank Jackson, I guess, is staying in the draft. I think he just had surgery. So I, I, don't, I guess he's not going to be doing any more workouts. Um, and then another guy who Eric and I were kind of fascinated by him. Um, it, it seems like he's more likely to go as a first rounder might be a stretch, uh, might be a stretch at 17. Um, uh, but Jawan Evans is another guy that has been talked about a fair bit. Maybe he doesn't profile as a bucks type guy cause he's not super tall, but, um, a- any of those guys, when you think about where they're sort of projecting in the draft, any of those guys kind of really jump out as guys you like, or, or guys that you don't particularly like uh, among the point guard crop. Jawan Evans is the clear guy to me. I'm really high on him. I have him top 20 as well. I just have him as a backup caliber point guard, but he's probably the best backup point guard you're going to find as far as his combination of skills. Very high volume in pick and roll at Oklahoma State. He's, he ran the most pick and roll plays, actually finished the most possessions for any lead guard in the last decade there. So he's very well versed in the pick and roll, can make reads very quick with his handle. But you, but you touched on his biggest issue, and that's defensively. He's going to get targeted in the playoffs. We've seen that over time. Uh, Jeff Teague this year. I mean, if you're small, you're going to get targeted at Isaiah Thomas. I like his – he has enough functional strength, I think, to survive in some matchups on switches and stuff. But he – I mean, he's just pretty damned with his size, even with like a 6'4", 6'5", wingspan, I want to say. But he's the clear number six point guard in the class for me and the only one I would take in the first round. That would be an incredible pick. I, I think that that would be an awesome pick for the Bucks. It's just can you stomach 
basically a backup point guard at that spot who can give you different elements of play. He's, he's different from Brogdon as far as his speed, his ability to shoot off the dribble. His finishing is going to be a problem. I mean, his two-point percentage on, in both years has been pretty horrible, and that backs up what you see on film. He's just not a very – he's not an explosive athlete around the rim, and his touch isn't great. So there are bad spots to his game, but for what you're looking at at the 17 spot, I would like him way more over the other guys. Monte Morris is probably my next favorite. He's a second-round pick for me. He's the incredibly cerebral player, can make all the reads. His assist-to-turnover ratio has been incredible all four years, but he, he can't really score on the same level as Evans. And when you're looking at point guards in the modern game, you want guys who can score, and he just doesn't fit that bill. So if you want a scoring point guard really late in the draft or maybe even undrafted, I would say Frank Mason is someone who can shoot the hell out of the ball off the dribble. He can shoot off the catch. He has, you know, that bull frame to where he can kind of hold up despite his ridiculous size. He's going to be a liability defensively, but he can give you stints as like your fifth point guard. But that's more of a round two pick. And I just want to plug here. You have done a series on point guards and um, looking at sort of different skill sets of the point guard crop um, at fan side at, uh, as part of the step back. So definitely check that out. Um, and I thought it was interesting. You had one chart um, in uh, one of your pieces and you've had like five of them. So I, I don't even I think it's the one, the primer on lead guards that you did. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because you mentioned Juwan Evans, you know, the, the struggles at, at finishing, which makes sense because he's not a big guy. Um, but it was interesting. I think, you, you know, you, you had a chart that showed you know he had by far the lowest percentage assisted at the rim and also he had the highest number of unassisted rim attempts per 40 minutes which was really interesting that he was so far ahead of of all these other guys who you know you like a De'Aaron Fox you think of as always being able to get to the rim and and, and guys like that um really interesting to see Evans and, and kind of where he shook out even if maybe he wasn't particularly effective at finishing um a guy who actually does seem to get to the rim and and of course interesting to see Lonzo Ball completely at the opposite end of the spectrum <laughs> all basically assisted you know it seems like all of them were like alley-oops that he caught um and and very few unassisted shots at the rim per 40 so be sure to check out some of that stuff from Cole especially if you're interested in uh, in any of the point guard prospects who again may, maybe not at the sweet spot of the draft where the bucks are but um that's certainly a position where I'm sure if the bucks got a point guard in this draft either in the first second round I'm sure a lot of bucks fans would quickly try to talk themselves into him just because it, it would fulfill a kind of an obvious need yeah and again uh, I think that Evans Evans is the clear guy for me if the bucks want a point guard at 17 or even moving back a little bit in the first round that would be my clear my clear target all right so Obviously, the Bucks have a second-round pick at 48, and I'm just always fascinated by who people tend to just become enamored with. Um, I know my second-round guy is Wesley Awundu. Yep. Um, I have I have some K-State ties, and I just enjoy what he does. Um, I think in the last couple of days, Frank and I have talked about Cameron Oliver a couple times, um, so that might be another one of our guys. Do you have a, a guy later in the draft that maybe at 48 would fit for the Bucks? We've talked about three of them already, Derek White, Jordan Bell, and Josh Hart. Wesley Awundu is actually on my list. He's one of the six. Uh, two other guys I'll mention, Sandarius Thornwell of South Carolina, someone who I'm incredibly high on defensively, 6'5", 215, really nice frame, uh, 6'10", wingspan. This guy just competes his ass off on defense. Like I think that's going to translate. I was a lot higher than him originally. I had him, I think, top 16 just because I, I value that two-way play a lot. But we're not sure if his three-point shot is going to translate from the in-person accounts that I've heard that have seen him shoot, especially like around the combine time, he he couldn't extend his range out. He has a he's bad mechanics as far as shooting knuckleballs. So I'm a little more dubious of his shot now. But if you're taking a dice roll on someone at 48, I think his defense is going to translate. So really, you're just, you're focusing on the shooting, and he's good enough as a passer where you can move the ball a little bit. He's not going to play heavy pick and roll or anything like that. But he does have some offensive game and he has some feel. Another guy that I really like is Sterling Brown out of SMU. He's someone that's not being talked about a lot, but if you want somebody who is a good bet to defend and shoot the ball, he's definitely the best, I would say in that range, the best shooting threat that can also defend. Um, he's got a great frame. I think he's 230, good length. He's not the he's not a hyper athlete. He's Shannon Brown's brother, um, but he's, he's not the same level of athlete, of course, but he's good enough to where I think he, he can survive on an NBA floor, especially guarding twos, but very clean mechanics, 
can make shots off the dribble and off the catch. I think his shot's going to translate to the next level from range. So Sterling Brown is someone who might even go undrafted, but at 48, I think he can be a rotation player. And again, someone who just has that defensive ability or at least a certain floor defensively that can also shoot the hell out of the ball. It's interesting you mentioned Hart and and Thornwell. Um, I was sort of putting together a cheat sheet for myself where I was just sort of pulling together, you know, per 40 minute pace adjusted stats and, you know, just sort of like box score plus minus and, you know, just sort of like some basic um, numbers to kind of help me figure out like how these guys play. And um, it's so interesting. I mean, you, you, you pull those numbers like box score plus minus and, and, you know, college PER and, and just look at all the stats and Thornwell's numbers, I mean, are incredible. Like you, you know, you, I, I, I hadn't really watched him that much because I, honestly, I didn't pay that as much attention to South Carolina's run in the fi- in the to the Final Four, and um, I just sort of looked at him, I'm just like Jesus Christ. I mean, this guy is ridiculously productive. And then I was kind of thinking, like, well, okay, so what's the catch with him? Why is he not really, you know, in in any discussions for the first round that I've been seeing? And of course, and you kind of look at it and you see, okay, well, he's, you know, he, he's got a good wingspan, but he's not, you know, enormous. His athletic tools don't really he didn't measure that well in terms of like his explosiveness and then you kind of watch the video and you're like yeah he doesn't you know doesn't really look particularly explosive but as you said i mean he's in in one of those interesting test cases for a guy who's older but is so productive at the college level and obviously like the work ethic you know obviously this guy isn't coasting right he's he's not getting by on just elite tools the entire time and i'm going to be really interested to see not only like if thornwell gets drafted but you know where he goes and and whether he might be kind of one of those sleeper guys and and hart was kind of similar you know another super productive guy at the college level four-year guy um but i i I was glad you mentioned him as a guy you like because he was definitely the guy of of hart and thornwell you know, just when you watch video of them, like Hart just looks more like an NBA player. You know, the athleticism is it just seems more there with him than a guy like Thornwell. But um, definitely two guys that that could fit, you know, a positional need for the Bucks in, in the second round. And, you know, as you said, I was I was I see I felt smart, Cole, because I asked you specifically when we were DMing like, oh, get your opinion on Josh Hart. So when you said <laughs> you liked him, I was like, oh, all right. I, I guessed right on one of the guys that that Cole likes. Um, so so that's definitely interesting. Um, and so I'm, I'm guessing you don't like Cameron Oliver as much cause you didn't mention him. Um, he was a guy, Eric saw him in person in the, in the, um, uh, in the tournament. And I was kind of like, was watching some video and looking at his numbers and it was kind of like, you know, he started shooting a lot of threes at a decent rate last year. And he just seems like such an explosive, like power dunker. And, and, you know, I, I don't know. It was a little interesting to me that he's also a guy who seems to be like a fringe second rounder at this point. Is that more of a kind of, you know, uh, character personality type thing or are there other kind of like obvious flaws in his game I mean, he's obviously not like a seven footer right he doesn't project as like a natural nba center more of a maybe smaller power forward um anything else about him that you particularly do or don't like for me i think it's the basketball iq when you watch him play i mean he has that intersection of athleticism shooting and block shots on st- like via stats and stuff if you look at his statistical profile he's really alluring in a lot of different cases but when you watch him play he misses defensive rotations at the four spot he doesn't seem to be clued in at all times there his shooting he kind of kicks his front foot out a lot and his mechanics aren't very sound so i, I don't know if a shot's going to translate he wasn't very good at the combine against that level of competition and that's something that i definitely look for i don't put too much stock in the combine of course but if you don't stand out physically and skill wise there there's probably an issue uh the more you talk about two guys about him it's like he he just doesn't really have it mentally as far as his approach to the game someone who wanted he, he just wants to be a pro he wasn't like the best teammate in college this is all like secondhand stuff i'm, I'm not like sourced or anything like that it's just, just from other sources that i've talked to and it, when you put everything together it's like this guy has some physical talent but I'm not sure if it's going to manifest on the court. We see a lot of these guys that are what I call like face-up handlers with low field floors that they can put the ball on the floor a little bit. He had this one pull-up jumper against uh, Iowa State in the tournament that was like, holy hell, like this guy can, you know, he can make that shot. (laughs) That was the game I watched. Yeah. That was the game I was at and saw. And I was like, what is this guy? Yes, that's exactly. I think that that was everybody's reaction. Like, holy shit, who is this guy? And then you watch more and you're like, okay, I mean, there are definitely flashes that make you seem like, okay, this guy could be something. He's definitely has the physical talent to be really good. I just don't know if the mental game is corresponding with that. And from what I've heard, the work ethic certainly is not a driving force there. All right. Um, I think I'm exhausted on this year's draft topics. Um, I think we've squeezed all of the information we can get out of you as far as that goes. But I wanted to take a quick look back at last year's draft. And obviously the Bucks had 
probably two of the best picks in the entire class in Thon Maker and Malcolm Brogdon that may speak more to the draft class and its overall production in the NBA this year. But um, it just seems like Thon and Malcolm Brogdon obviously stood out quite a bit. And I'm just curious maybe what you thought of them last year and now what you what you think of them and maybe their potential going forward. I'll start with Thon. I did not see a lot of him pre-drafts. I was not at the Hoop Summit and probably if I was there, I would think even lower of him because all the reports <laughs> from coming from the practice week was that Scalabissier just absolutely dominated him. And so that kind of put people on like a pedestal. Had that's why Scal was like number 1 on DX coming out of that whole thing entering the year. Everybody's really high on him because he was so much better than Thon at that point. I had not seen pretty much anything outside of like some clips about him dribbling and stuff. And you're like, okay, like he has some perimeter skills. It looked like his shot was pretty decent, but there just wasn't enough information for me to really rank him. I had him as like a early round two dice roll based on just physical tools. But as far as now, I think he he's a real player. I mean, we saw him move in the playoffs. Like he mirrored Kyle Lowry a couple times, like from half court sliding all the way to the rim to be able to block shots. And you're like, okay, this guy can be something. He can defend in space. He's not the best vertical athlete, but he has enough mobility and length to compensate for that around the rim. And like we talked about, if he could shoot, that's exactly the kind of guy you want to put around Giannis because those two can shut down the paint together. And if he can space the floor and give Giannis all that space to operate with those big spin moves and stuff, I mean, he's a real player. He could be one of the easily one of the most five best players of this class as far as value moving forward. And it's a poor, it's a poor class, but I mean, it's, even in isolation, I think Thon has value. Malcolm Brogdon, someone I didn't see a ton of at Virginia, but he was someone who could operate off the ball. He, he was really high usage coming off screens. He was pretty good there as far as shooting. And the frame was clearly one of his best assets as far as being able to switch and you know anchor in the post with a low center of gravity. I didn't think he'd be this. <laughs> I mean, just frankly, I, I did not think he'd have this kind of early impact. He's in a great situation kind of playing that lead guard spot or secondary handler next to Giannis, which makes Giannis one of the most alluring pieces to build around just because you can just start drafting for these two-way players that a lot of people don't – they don't have the privilege of doing because they need more playmaking. So they have to go more offense-oriented. It's, it's really nice to be able to get those two-way play. But moving forward, I'm not sure if I see Brogdon as like a high-level starter. I think he's probably a fringe starter but a really valuable rotation player at the bare minimum. If he can shoot well, it really comes down to that. I mean, if he can shoot 38% from three, 40% from three, you really have something. If he's not shooting, he's probably not going to be able to guard the elite lead guards as far as speed, lateral agility, all that stuff. But where they got him, I mean, obviously it was a hell of a pick. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I mean, you look at the fact that the Bucks, you know, were were in a playoff series starting two rookies, um, and and having both of those guys. I mean, obviously there was inconsistency there. Brogdon sort of struggled more as as the series went on, but um, I think especially Thon seeing seeing what he was able to, do, especially defensively, um, it's the flashes that that he showed. And and again, as you said, I mean, uh, guys who can shoot and have you know some tools like he does defensively and and just motor right, you know, and and just really yeah. hardworking. Um, I think that's just a. I think a Bucks fans let were you know he he was a fan favorite from the start of the season. Um, there was a lot of enthusiasm about him, and, and just to see him go from being being like a victory cigar who would you know shoot three pointers at the end of blowouts to a guy that was starting in the playoffs, even if he wasn't a huge minute guy, um, was definitely a huge thing for the Bucks. And it, it's funny. I mean, it did seem you were alluding to it. It seemed like the people who had seen Thon the most were the most pessimistic about him going into the draft last year, and I and I can't help but think that maybe a lot of that was. Because there was such a, it was like it was like the you know the the low information people were the most excited at, based on some of the YouTube stuff, and so it was almost like I think the more people had seen him, the more sort of maybe they were overly negative just because, uh, you know, it was like, hey, look, he's not going to be dribbling the ball off the court and doing like wing stuff, like that's not <laughs> who he is, and I think a lot of people felt like they had to you know really scream and shout to make people realize that he wasn't you know the next Kevin Durant, which, you know, is kind of silly to say now, but, um, but there obviously was such a bizarre kind of hype around him in high school. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think when, when he was drafted, I mean, I think we were all kind of nervous because it was like, holy crap at number 10, but, um, but he's such a, I mean, it's one of those things like I always viewed him, I, I viewed him less from sort of an upside perspective and more just, he's also seemed like a high floor guy in the sense that he's, he was, everyone talked about him with the bucks being like this ridiculously high character, you know, super mature 
high motor guy, you know, like you had no concerns about him in terms of personality. And then he obviously has some physical tools that are unique. And I think, you know, you hit it on the head as far as like, he does have, you know, some issues, I think with the vertical explosiveness, like, you know, 36, 37 inch vertical does not show itself that often. He really needs to kind of gather himself and load up to really show off some of that. Um, you know, doesn't often get that, that same kind of lift on, on especially like around the rim and you'll kind of say like, man, he, why didn't he, dunk, why didn't he dunk that? But, um, <laughs> hopefully that's one of those things, you know, we saw it with the Giannis, um, as he physically matured and got stronger, I mean, he got more explosive and, you know, he, what he looks like now physically obviously doesn't look anything like what he did when he came into the league. And Thon's obviously a different kind of athlete. He's not, you know, a, 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 you know, Giannis level fluidity, especially with the ball at, by, by any stretch. But um, we'll definitely be hopeful that that he can add some weight, regardless of how old he is. We'll be hopeful that he can, <laughs> he can get stronger. And, and I, I think, you know, we I think for Eric and I, the huge thing was. Not only did he play, but he was playing center, right? I mean, he was a full-time center for this team, and that's obviously where you unlock that that unique value as as a guy who can stretch the floor and and move defensively. Yeah, and I mean, Jason Kidd gets his fair amount of criticism, and a lot of it's deserved. I thought some of the lineups this year weren't weren't the best, but he at least played Thon at center, and that's something yeah. to you know you appreciate. Like the, a lot of coaches would have played him at the four. We saw Indiana do that with Miles Turner his rookie year, and Thon was always a five. So if he can man that spot, he's physical enough to compete on the glass and obviously the high character. I, I like him going forward. We didn't know his age, of course. That's something I didn't include coming in. That was another really big uncertainty as far as like getting his birth records and all that stuff. But this is someone I think me and Frank, I think we talked about this after Summer League. Like he just he really stuck out as far as his lateral agility. He did he, he did himself well there. So ever since Summer League, I saw him in person about a couple feet away. I was buying in as far as just being a rotation player and a solid piece as a defensive big who can move in space because those guys are really rare. And there, there are probably five centers in the league that can move like he can, probably not even that much, and mirror opposing point guards in space sliding. So definitely an asset, and he fits Milwaukee's scheme really well. So I think he's definitely a building block. So we talked a lot about, I think last question, we talked a lot about, you know, the the guys that the Bucks might look at, the guys you, you think could fit well. Um, let's just, just take a step back and philosophically, I mean, you've got a ton of stuff on your website, kind of looking at different types of player archetypes. And, you know, you, you talk a lot about value. And I think if, you know, you listen to a lot of stuff you do, I mean, the, you know, we talk about positional scarcity and, and how that plays into all this as well. And we talk, got into it a little bit here with some of the big men and, and how, you know, there are a lot of big guys in this draft um, and they're, they're maybe not valued so much in the league anymore. And, and the Bucks know that all too well, given how many big guys they've had. Um, when you, when you approach the, you know, uh, this draft or, or any draft for that matter, especially through the lens of the Bucks. I mean, on draft night, I, I mean, if if you again had that G, had that GM spot, um, I mean, the Bucks have historically swung for the fences. Is that something that that your mindset would be around? I mean, you know, I guess on the one end, it might be the Luke Kennard type, sort of the known quantity, one clear skill type guys um, versus on the other, some of these higher upside guys who, you know, ultimately may not be able to play at all. Right. Like a Hamadou Diallo. I don't know. Maybe you just flames out in a few years, but but has that kind of upside. I mean, where do you kind of fall out on that? Obviously, it depends on on the player and the prospect. But um, I mean, if you're the Bucks, do, do, would you given where they are right now, would you try to go for another big more of a home run or you know do you think this is the draft where the bucks should you know go for more of the you know clear go for you know hit, try to hit a double into the alley or or just get a single and, and get a guy that's going to you know you're going to be able to get a contributor in well i think the easy answer is it depends on who's there at that spot i like to roll i like to swing for the fences when the upside is a, a valuable archetype someone who I know can contribute to winning basketball if they reach their potential. Usually that involves some kind of feel floor, some smarter players um, who have that athletic upside. I tend to, to shy away from just the raw athletes unless they have some functional strength or some kind of functional skill on the court that manifests itself. But as far as building a team, I, I really do think that you have to take swings on valuable archetypes. When you look at drafts in retrospect, it, the fact that Giannis fell to 15, I, I know it's a, it's a dice roll and nobody had that much information about him, but those are the guys that really swing your franchises. You, you, like the Paul George at 10, you can come up with a lot of different examples. Like those are the keys to the draft. If you draft for safety and to get guys that will just fill a role, in the grand scheme of things, that probably won't matter because there are very few guys that matter. Nikola Jokic getting the Nuggets getting him where they got him was probably more valuable than anybody else. Like combined, like it, that's the way it works. 
when you swing for the fences and you hit the honest superstars, that is what changes your franchise. But those guys have to be there. You have to at least have some kind of outcome or ceiling outcome that you can look at and be like, okay, he could be what I call for Giannis a primary initiating wing. So really he can handle all the playmaking and, you know, facilitate. He can get to the rim and score. He's the closest thing I think that we've seen to LeBron as far as just stylistically. I'm not calling him LeBron, but just as far as approach, like those guys are impossible to find. Like we might get one next year with Luka Doncic as far as being the number one pick in the 2018 draft, another kind of primary initiating wing. But those guys, those special, special archetypes, like if Thon's a unicorn, that's a very conducive uh, piece to building, probably a number two, number three option on a title team, probably number three in the Chris Tapps Porzingis mold, if he can shoot that well, who knows. But guys like that, where we know that they can fill a role that's a really high-level role and a valuable skill, I would absolutely swing for the fences on. But like a guy like Hamadou Diallo, I don't think he has that kind of upside. His upside is more point of attack defense. If he can shoot the three, then he becomes like a three and D plus guy that can really harass opposing point guards. And I think that has a lot of value. And at 17, that's one of the most valuable things you can get as like a point of attack defender. But he probably doesn't carry that same kind of overall upside. So that's a long way of saying that I would always take a bet on valuable skills over settling for just known quantities that don't have a lot of value. Usually that aligns with one skill shooters, like even Buddy Heald in the draft last year. Is he really going to make a difference for your franchise? I know he's safe in the top six as far as just being able to shoot adequately well, but what is the upside? So I tend to decide with rolling the dice on guys that you think can reach ceiling outcomes that will actually impact your franchise trajectory moving forward. So if that guy's available for the Bucks at 17, I would definitely swing for the fences, but I don't know if that's going to be the case in this draft. Cole, this has been great. Um, I think everybody listening will be smarter going into this draft. Uh, maybe Justin Zanuck will be the guy making the pick. We'll, I'm sure Eric and I will talk a lot more about the Bucks GM situation uh, in the coming days and perhaps weeks, depending on how long this takes. Um, but Cole Zwicker, thanks so much for joining us. And um, once again, be sure to check out everything Cole is doing um, on uh, the step back uh, at, in his uh, podcast what's on draft pod um and honestly like I, I i just the other day like when i was i was trying to find so i just like go, i just put your your name into the, like the uh, podcast uh, the apple podcast search tab and then you showed up on like the game theory pod too so i know you're making your rounds now so um so be sure to look out for for everything cole's writing um he's got that great series uh over at the step back on point guard so if you have any interest in these point guards um be sure to check that out and what is your twitter handle twitter handle is it at cole's wicker what is it cole yeah, that's exactly it. It's really creative. So next level stuff. <laughs> All right. Be sure to check that out. And um, Cole's website, capstrategist.com. Cole, thanks so much. And uh, hopefully we'll get you back sometime soon and uh, maybe break down uh, all the madness that is sure to, to uh, happen on June 22nd. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, guys. Hi, you've reached the high fashion hotline. Hi, my family's going to a tailgate and I want our style to stand out from the crowd. Just go to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's got all the latest fall styles. Plus, during Old Navy's colossal sale, you'll save up to 50% off store-wide. Did you say up to 50% off? I did, so don't sit on the sidelines. Old Navy has the perfect pants from 19 bucks, stylish dresses from 15 bucks, and comfy tees for the family from just 6 bucks. Right now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. We're cheering for Old Navy. High fashion, Old Navy. Valid 10-2 to 10-10. Select styles only.